Did you know that you can listen to every single episode of Gangry the Podcast on our website? Just go to gangrythepodcast.com and you can listen to interviews with amazing writers and reporters like Pamela Koloff, David Gran, Janet Reitman, Tom Junot, Eli Saslow, Ben Montgomery, Landa Gregory, and so many more. Just go to gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Gangri the Podcast is brought to you by the Digital Journalism Program at Fairfield University. The Bachelor of Arts degree in Digital Journalism is a rigorous 12-course program designed to provide students with the skills, knowledge, and experience needed to take part in today's quickly changing media world. The podcast is also brought to you by the College of Arts and Sciences at Fairfield University. The college grounds students in the 500-year-old Jesuit tradition of academic rigor and personal reflection while providing them with the critical skills needed to succeed in work and life. To learn more about the Digital Journalism Program and the College of Arts and Sciences, visit www.fairfield.edu. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. Before I get to telling you about this rebroadcast, I want to let you know that I'll have new episodes starting January 5th. That's when I'll talk with Bradford Pearson about his new book, The Eagles of Heart Mountain, a true story of football, incarceration, and resistance in World War II America. That book goes on sale that same day. Then, I'll follow that up one week later with an episode featuring Andrea Pitzer. We'll talk about her new book, Icebound, Shipwrecked at the Edge of the World. That show will go live on January 12th, the same day her book officially goes on sale. So, two great new episodes coming up the first two weeks of January. Until then, I'm going to replay a couple of episodes from the archives. This episode features a talk I had with Jeannie Marie Laskus way back in November of 2013. At the time, we talked about her profile of our new president, Joe Biden. She spent a day with him being driven around his hometown of Wilmington, Delaware. That story ran in GQ. I had no agenda. I just wanted him to I just wanted him to take me where he wanted to go. And so the first place he went was there, was to the cemetery. And he really wanted to show me this church, which I thought we were going to see this church. Um, he's very enthusiastic, you know. You gotta see this, you know walking me in the church. This is where so-and-so got married, this, this tiny little church. And then there was the cemetery around it. And then he started talking about who was buried in the cemetery. So it came like that, really organically out of the moment. Since joining the podcast, Laskus has written two more books, bringing her total to nine. In 2015, Concussion was released. That book expanded her 2009 story, Game Brain, which we also talk about on this show. It was also turned into a feature film starring Will Smith. And in 2018, To Obama with Love, Joy, Anger, and Hope was published. For this book, she interviewed President Obama as well as the people who wrote him letters. As usual, I've linked to everything that we talk about on our website. You can find that at gangrythepodcast.com. 
That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Jean Marie, thanks for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, can we talk a little bit about the Joe Biden piece? Uh, it was published in July, uh, the July issue of GQ, um, earlier this year. Uh, I'm really curious about how that piece just came about. <laughs> how did it come about? I think it was one of those situations where you're chatting with your beloved editor, in this case, Mike Benoit, GQ, and... Um, <laughs> you know, who are we interested in? Who who are we interested in? Who Who's like right underneath our noses who we think we know, but we probably don't. And just Joe Biden popped in. We were both like, yeah, Joe Biden. That's it. Honestly, God, it was that, com- it was that not complicated an idea. And then <laughs> how do you, go- so I imagine that would be really, you know, yeah, let's write about Joe Biden. Um, but he's also the vice president of the United States. So how do you go about actually getting him to even give you the access that you ended up having with him? Well, yes, of course, that's the whole issue because um, I like to write about characters. I like to write usually about people that nobody ever heard of, you know, like coal miners and just just folks. Um, and the idea for this was like, let's, of all the people, wouldn't Joe Biden be just a guy, you know, underneath it all? Like it just seemed like, Surely we could get to just the guy, but then it did keep coming up that he was the vice president of the United States. That was like, oh yeah, that's right. Okay, this is going to be an obstacle. Um, so basically, you know, I, I formed a a nice relationship with the White House, um, explaining what my idea was, and they liked the idea. But of course, they're used to dealing with a press corps, so you get lumped in with a press corps for about you know a long time. Um, and you kind of need to earn the trust of, of people. So I, I, I spend a lot of time on stories, like a lot of time in research. And in this case, the time was on doing a lot of stuff that probably wasn't going to end up being in the story. And in fact, it wasn't. Um, it was only when we, I finally got him to agree. Well, I don't even know whose idea it was, but it was like, let's go to Wilmington. And that's where the whole story sort of opened up, spending just one-on-one time with him in his home his hometown. How much time did you have to spend with kind of doing that, that kind of background work to kind of gain the trust of, of Joe Biden? Well, uh, and it was really, in this case, normally it would just be the trust of the, per- of the person you're writing about, but in this case it was the whole team of people, you know, who are positioning him in a certain way. So it, it was months. I mean, on and off for months. I would just sort of drive down to Washington and go to a, you know some event he was having at his house, but, you know, I'm in the press pool, I'm behind the rope with everybody else, you know, just sort of standing there. It was absorbing, you know, watching. Nothing to write about, though, really, truly, in those moments. And you think, huh, okay, am I going to, what am I going to, I mean, I had nothing to write about for all that time. But I, it doesn't really discourage me if I think that it's all going to end up somewhere, you know. And in this case, I mean, I went to Rome with them to the Pope's inauguration, you know. Like I just went to a lot of places, but it, but honestly, Wilmington ended up being the most interesting. Yeah, can you talk about? Um, there's the one scene uh, early in the story where you're at the cemetery, and mm. I think that's a really striking scene. Can you talk a little bit about how that unfolded and and what that was like? I guess to kind of witness. Yeah, that was interesting because it was right at the beginning of our 
little trip through memory lane in Wilmington there where we were in the motorcade and I was sitting next to him. And this is the closest I'd ever gotten to him really. I don't mean physically. I mean, just sort of like chatty wise up to that point, everything had been a um, kind of you know set up interview with 15 tape recorders going everywhere because the white house is part of it and everybody's part of it and everybody's staring at everybody. And it's all very, you know, you know, buttoned up. And so this is when we're finally meeting in Wilmington and I had no agenda. I just wanted him to, I just wanted him to take me where he wanted to go. And so the first place he went was there was to the cemetery and he really wanted to show me this church, which I thought we were going to see this church. Um, he's very enthusiastic, you know, you got to see this, you know, walking me in the church, this is where so-and-so got married, this, this tiny little church. And then there was this cemetery around it. And then he started talking about who was buried in the cemetery. So it came like that, really organically out of the moment. Now, whether he had intended to show me that very spot, I don't know, but it certainly was a um, a real quiet moment of, like, whoa, we're here where his wife was buried. Whoa, we're here where his daughter was buried. Oh, okay. This is, you know, and he didn't want to go over there. He didn't want to go over to the grave. So you felt, you know, just brought me into it, brought me into his mind and his heart in a way that I had not been. The uh, the pace of the story, especially in that early in that early part, is like almost frantic. Mm. Uh, I think, uh, and I'm assuming you did that on purpose because I'm assuming that's probably what it was like on that kind of that day with him. Oh yeah. I'm trying to, I think, hammer the reader with the same kind of hammered feeling I got, um, where, you know, you are being taken on a ride. There, there is no chance to ask why are we going anywhere or what's going on? I mean, you are being, it, it feels like, you know, he's yanking you around and so that's kind of like I guess in the prose you're sort of mimicking that mm, that pace yeah um the uh have you written about other politicians before and has it been that frantic as well I don't do I don't I I don't really no let me see if I've written any about any politicians not as a rule it's just sort of not I don't have like a beat it seems like <laughs> at all it seems like I, I, politicians, it seems to me, are really tough to crack and to get the personal story. I don't know. I mean, that just oh, yeah. is my, you know, what I get from reading most, mo- anything that's written about a politician. It's really hard to get inside, you know? Yeah, yeah, because everything needs to be manufactured. And, you know, and I sort of understand that it needs to be, especially, you know, at the higher, higher and higher, higher levels. It's not a real person. It's a, it's just, it's, it isn't. It can't be. It's a mouthpiece for a set of policies. So I'm not really very interested in um, any of that. The staging of it is just like the only kind of interesting part, but eh, not that interesting. So that's always the challenge with with um, any of those. That's why that's why they all read the same, you know, typically. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't. I was not interested in writing that story. Not, not, not. I wanted to write about a character. I wanted to write about. Um, you know, either here's what it's like to be vice president. Like, here's what the job is. I think that was our first idea. Um, but more interesting to me was like, what's it feel like to be the vice president? Were you ever worried that you weren't going to get that? Mm-hmm. 
Mike and I would have a conversation as I would drive home from Washington each and every time. It was like, oh, boy. Oh, boy. Should we pull the plug? Oh, boy. Because <laughs> I couldn't get close enough. You know, as kind as the, the White House staff were, and they were wonderful, and I liked them so much, and I formed friendships with them, um, there was only so much they could really allow the vice president to do. Um, and then I, I'm not sure why finally they opened up and gave me that Wilmington day. It was only a day. It was only a day. All of that, all of that months and months of research really was about getting that day in Wilmington, as, as it turned out. Have you ever had any other story? That's story. Yeah. Have you ever had any other story where you've had that months of research that kind of lead to one day that makes the story? Um, I think a lot of them do because you never know. Well, let's say, let me back up. I never know what's going to be interesting. I never go in with a set of, to any of these stories, with a set of questions or a set of, expectations even you know I kind of like go with this more throw yourself to the wolves feeling of well let's go see what this experience is like let's go see what it's like in a coal mine let's go see what it's like on an oil rig or any of these places um and so I I go in blind I go in not knowing and so maybe the first I spend a lot of time on these stories I guess a lot of you know a lot of time researching so you know maybe the first Four times you're visiting these folks, you're you're like I mean, I, I always tell like people who are just starting out, you have to be like a high capacity for boredom. This kind of work, because a lot of stuff is just really boring. A lot of stuff is just waiting, 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 waiting. As you become invisible in front of these people, you know, like the more longer you're there, the more invisible you become. And then can start seeing the action, the real action. Of the world. Mm-hmm. Did um, anything surprise you in the course of reporting the story? Mm. Uh, surprised me how very, very, very difficult the press corps works. I mean, how difficult their jobs are, and how oh, how I could I could never do that job, well, the job that the press corps works. You know, and um, the the White House court where where you're going and sitting in a a motorcade van for four hours waiting for the person to come out and give a speech then you're sitting back in the van typing it on your blackberry to your editor and that's your story like i I just i I want to write (laughs) i really wouldn't have a clue so i do think that that surprised me a lot just seeing how they work yeah and yeah, I, got I admire. I mean, I admire anything comes out of that. Yeah, I got a taste of that when I worked at the Columbus Dispatch. I was a poll reporter when um, President Bush visited Columbus for a fundraiser, and literally, we didn't even get to go in to the fundraiser. We just sat in a barn and waited for him to come back out, and then that was it. We just sat and waited and got nothing. So, uh, and they, yeah. I only had to do that once. They have to do it everywhere they go, every single day, and I just couldn't imagine that. So. Yeah, I, I really had never seen it that close, and that surprised me a lot. As in terms of the vice president's life, it just surprised me what a, what fun it is to to hang out with him. Right. I mean, that I I just it was hilarious. It was just hilarious. 
Yeah, I think there's a line in there. I one of I think a line uh, also towards the the, the beginning. This is just one sentence. Joe Biden does not pause, and I think <laughs> that's a great line because I think it really encapsulates him. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. No pause. No chance for you to say, "Wait, what?" <laughs> or why are you telling me this? Because he's already on to the next thing. Um, there's uh, also that scene where he just stops at his old school. Um, uh-huh. Can you talk uh-huh. about what that was like? Well, again, we didn't. I didn't know where we were going. You know, we're going touring through the neighborhood, and all of a sudden, we it was great because we just pull up into the driveway. This grand school, you know, Archmere Academy. It's kind of a beautiful campus. Looks like a small college, and um, he's, you know. I don't even know where we are. We're just getting out of the car. And then, so we just all start following. We just all start walking. And the Secret Service guys, and I thought I knew where the Secret Service guys were, but then they started more, were appearing out of nowhere, sort of swirling. I'm like, where are all these people? Where are, you know? So it's like a whole system going on. That's pretty cool. And he just walks into the campus. Nobody knew he was coming. The students are just hanging out for lunch, you know, out in the yard, out in the whatever, commons area. And they look up like, oh, Biden's here. Hey, cool. And he's just waving, hey, hey, I used to go to school here. Hi. I mean, he was just so unannounced and just completely like just a neighbor coming to visit. And then, of course, swarms and swarms of people came around. And he just loves it. He just loves it. Loves the attention. <laughs> I mean, he loves what he does, that man. Did you get, uh, get any feedback? Um, from from the vice president after the story ran, no, his um, his people, Shayla Mary is his um, um, communications director. She's wonderful. She uh, she she really liked the story and said that pretty much everyone there was happy, you know, with the portrayal. Um, even like some of his family or something like, I don't know. Somebody said I really captured him, but he. The word is that that Biden will never read anything about himself, and and even Shayla's not sure she believes it. But she, to her knowledge, she doesn't know that he read it. That's pretty. That's interesting. Um, mm-hmm. Is there anything else that you uh, that that came up in the course of that reporting that you think was interesting, or I don't know, just in terms of uh, the reporting and the writing? Um, how much time did it take you to write the story? Oh, gosh, a long time because I'm so slow. Um, I don't really remember exactly, but several weeks, certainly. And, you know, it's not that long a piece, but you go through so many dra- I go through so many drafts because I kept thinking that, you know, I had spent all this time in Rome with the Pope and Biden and all the pomp and circumstances of that and the complications and on Air Force Two and all this material – you you have all that. You think well, you got to use that, and, you know, and then all, and then the, you know, and then the president of this country and the president of Brussels, Poland, and all these fancy pants people. So I was really overwhelmed with all that material. Like, what am I going to do with all that? Because really, all I want to write about is Wilmington. And so I had many, many drafts with a lot of that stuff, and it all happened before in, in sort of chronology. Um, chronologically, it happened before I got to Wilmington. So, like, the whole half, first half of the story was all this Rome stuff and all this fancy stuff. And it was, like, irrelevant. So, you know, that's hard to cut. <laughs> and then it was just like, you know, this thing needs to start in Wilmington. 
And it seems like such a small idea to go that small, but of course it's the right idea. It's the, for that story, for that kind of thing I was trying to capture. It's, um, it's that tight shot of a real guy dealing with himself as a kid, you know, that's, that's so much more interesting than all the fancy pomp and circumstance of anything. And I know it, but I couldn't convince myself of it. So I had to go through many drafts of that. Yeah. I think it's the perfect beginning. I mean, because you get the franticness and you get where he came from. And I think just him trying to get into his old house is like really telling, but also funny at the same time. Mm. Oh, yeah, I know. Isn't that hilarious that he's trying to get into his house? He's peeking in the window. We're like in his old house. Where Emma's like, people aren't even home. He's like, yeah, it's my house. We're peeking in the friggin', you know, dining room window looking at the hutch. I'm like, I can't believe this is sort of happening with the Secret Service guys all out there. But, you know, by that point, you're so used to it, you're not even sure that that's weird. You know, not weird, but that it's unusual. You have to keep stepping back and saying, wait a second, this is the vice president of the United States. This is unusual. Yeah, but the, but the, the other piece of that was made that story difficult was all the stuff. Here's really the, the hard part. And this is like for any writer. Because it's a known, you know, it's, it's Biden. It's maybe he's going to run for president, but maybe Hillary is going to, you know, step in soon. So Biden won't. And that's all anybody really in the chattering class is talking about. And the stories that are already written about Biden are all smart um, politics stories. So I feel like as a writer, I need to be one of them. You, you know, at first you do, like I need to be with the cool crowd and write like that and speak to that sort of like question of 2016 and speak to the policy something 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 but you because you, you do that because you're just like an insecure little kid ultimately trying to act like a grown-up you know in a story so you have to go through all the layers of that until you go you know what i'm not that person i'm not that writer what is the sense of me pretending to be that writer like why bother like other people do that i'm not good at that i don't even want to be good at that i don't have you know, it's not real. It's not real. It's not real to me. So what do I have to offer that is me? And that's a character sketch, you know? So it takes a long time to fight your own shit. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, I, I, I love that story. Um, another story, I think it might have been even, I don't know if it's one of the first stories of yours that I read, uh, was Game Brain. Um, mm -hmm. And we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, but before we talk, start talking about that, you've written a lot, of, a lot about sport. You said you don't have a beat, but you tend to you tend to write about sports uh, quite a bit. Um, and uh, and you've been anthologized in Best American Sports Writing, I think what six times now. Um, what draws you to sports? Why sports? All right, this is just I'm so happy you brought this up because it's hilarious to me. Nothing draws me about to sports. Zero. I have no interest in sports. I keep ending up in sports anthologies. Um, the reason I write about sports is because it started with in Esquire when I was there, and Andy Ward was my editor at Esquire at that time, and the idea was, since I don't know about sports, since I'm not much of a football fan particularly, um, isn't it interesting to 
send someone in, to write a profile when she knows really very little, has no baggage. I bring no baggage to a football story. For example, I wrote a, the first sports thing I think I ever did was writing about this big football player named Corey Stringer who has since died. Um, and Andy's idea was go write about what it feels like to be a lineman and get bashed in every single Sunday. Like that's your job to get bashed in by these big humongous people. Like that's your job. Just go write about that experience. So I go to the Minnesota Vikings training camp. I know nothing. I don't know the coach's name. I don't know the history of the team. I don't know if this is a good team, a bad team. I know nothing. So I don't go with any – I don't even bother with the questions that a sports writer would ask because I don't even know them. So instead, that gets me right front and center with the guy, the character, the person. That's sort of the model. Um, so when I write about a sports figure, I'm writing – just about a person who happens to play sports. Do you see? No, yeah, I totally agree. And I think that's why um, the sports stuff that you write is so good is because it's not necessarily a sports story. Um, it's a person story. Um, mm -hmm. And I think uh, even uh, Glenn Stout wrote about that on a, on a Deadspin posting yesterday in terms of the stories he's looking for for best American sports writing aren't necessarily sports stories. Um, but they're related to sports in some way, shape, yes. or form. So I totally credit him for pulling out these kinds of stories in those anthologies. Uh, not I just I don't mean mine. I mean all of them. I just love what he does. He gets it. He he because that's those are the kind of sports stories I would read too. You know, like the yeah. I think he does a fabulous job. I get that. Yeah. Um, let's talk about uh, uh, Game Brain. Um, how? What got you on that track? Because you wrote about that in 2009, and right. we're just now starting to hear a lot of stuff, like uh, with the Frontline piece and um, uh, mm -hmm. you know the the new book by the ESPN reporters, um, mm. uh, Liga Denial. Um, mm -hmm. We're just now; it's 2013. You wrote about it in 2009. Um, what got you onto that story? And then, kind of, you know, what are your thoughts of how it's developed and why it's taken so long to kind of gain momentum? Oh, gosh. Okay. Let me see. I'm trying to gonna try and squash this because, again, this one in particular is so not the kind of story I do. Um, it really isn't. I mean, really, if you think about that, that like, ended up being almost an investigative piece. Mm -hmm. And it's really not the kind of story I do. Um, this is now, now flash forward, Andy Ward now is at GQ and he's my editor. Um, I don't want to tell you a whole this sort of boring backstory, but Let's just say I'm writing about this concussion debate that's, that was going on at the time. It wasn't really a debate, though, when I was writing about it. It was more like a crisis, you know, like, oh, boy, football players, you know, oops, football players are getting sort of, um, you know, I don't, it, it, this is not a new story, right? Even when I was researching it back then. But, and Alan Schwartz in the New York Times had done fantastic reporting. Um and there's this guy um, who, Chris Nowinski, who was the, um, oh, who was kind of like the PR guy for concussion-related injury, who is, you hear, you hear his name a lot in conjunction with the Boston Group, who's doing a lot of research. So I was just going to do an update, just to make it, just an update. That's all I, my intention was back then, because I thought this story was already reported. So the way I wanted to 
needed the update was I just wanted to see a brain. I wanted to get the physical, just wanted to see a brain. You know, they had all these brains in Boston in these dishes, you know, that they had all that they had cut and sliced and found um, they were finding this disease in. And they didn't have the brain I wanted. I wanted to this guy Justin Strelzik's brain because his backstory I thought was really fascinating. So I'm like, where's the brain? And they kept saying, well, we don't have that one. I'm like, well, where is it? And they're like, well, it's in West Virginia. I'm like, why is there a brain in West Virginia? At that point, no one knew any, there was no press at all having anything to do with this original group who first cracked this case. It had, was off, it was so off the pages, I couldn't find anything about it. And I will say publicly, Chris Nowinski tried to, tried to steer me away from it. It was all then just trying to find this brain. I find this doctor in West Virginia who knows where the brain is of this dead football player who tells me about this guy, Bennett Omalu, who had discovered basically this disease in football players. And he had been squashed by the NFL, which was bad enough, oh, and repeatedly, which is, was bad enough, but then squashed sort of by the media. I don't think on purpose, but he was forgotten about. And, but it was sort of a systematic thing that was happening. And it bothered me that the guy who found the disease never really got recognized. So I went and I found him. Um, and that's what I really ended up writing about in 2009. I, I, I got a really interest. I got really interested in this scientist's um, private discovery of this disease. This guy from Nigeria who doesn't understand, I mean, probably related to him. He doesn't understand football. doesn't know what football is. He's got Mike Webster's brain on a dish and he's trying to figure out how, how Mike Webster died. And he ends up taking the brain home to his apartment to slice it and dice it and do all they do with brains to find what the secret of the, this injury was. And so my story was basically unraveling that narrative of this guy and this brain slowly, step by step, step by step, unraveling it untangling it and and you know basically just telling the narrative that had been left out that's mostly what I did in that piece um, and it got a lot of attention back in 2009 the congressional hearings happened shortly after that lots happened because of the NFL's denial of Bennett O'Malley is the scientist's name of his work and the repeated attempts to silence him uh, that to me was and still is the story for all these nfl players mm -hmm. the fact that they've been duped these old guys in particular um the reason i think it doesn't it did it, i mean it got some attention back then but i've seen this now since 2009 so many times we go through this cycle and now we're in another one now because of the league of denial stuff which is great which is basically, you know, telling it again um, in, a, in a bigger format. Um, and I think the reason that the, I think the public 
only wants to know so much about this. Nobody wants to stop watching football. And if you really paid attention to this stuff and really listened and really went back like I did, read that 2009 story, read it step by step and see what happened, you can't watch football anymore. So I think the public doesn't want to know. I don't, I don't think – I don't want you – I don't even want to know. That's what I think. Yeah. Was it, I, think it's, I think it's happening again. I think the league of denial is getting great attention and already it's like – Mm, everybody's watching football. Yeah, was it difficult to um, was he was was um, and I, I'm going to say his name wrong. Um, uh, the neuropathologist that you focus yeah, the story on, Amalu. Huh? Yeah, um, was he, given that he had been you know kind of squashed so many times. Um, was it difficult to get him to talk with you at that point in time? Because I would imagine it would get. It would be rough to be in the spotlight that often and constantly get shut down. Or was he more than willing to, to work with you? I think, well, you know, there was a little team, him and Julian Bales, who was the, sci the scientist in West Virginia, um, and, his, and his attorney. They were all, they all knew Mike Webster. And so they were all part of that original sort of discovery. And I think when they heard that I was interested in really unraveling it, and telling it, and I'm like genuinely trying to, I'm genuinely trying to figure out what the hell happened, and why isn't, why is the New York Times been leaving this guy out? Like, why is everybody leaving this guy out? I think, I think they were. Well, I remember Julian Bales said, "You know what? Stop asking me questions. Just come to this diner in West Virginia, and we'll talk." And I just showed up in this diner, and that's when he sort of explained his version of the whole thing to me. And he told Bennett to talk to me, and Bennett did. I think that's kind of the sequence. Mm -hmm. um, you, you talk about uh, writing about characters a lot, and you have a piece in, in the most recent issue of GQ that I guess you could say is about a character, um, oh, uh, an undercover hitman. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, can you talk a little bit about that story? I, I don't know why, but I just thought that story was so funny. I know, um, and so I don't know if it should that. be. I mean, you're writing about people who want to hire somebody to kill a loved one, or mm -hmm. like not really a loved one, I guess. But but it's yeah. hilarious. Murder. It's funny. I'm so glad to hear you said it because that was our reaction to it too. The material. I'm like, well, it was my reaction when I was researching it, even with with the ATF. We were all laughing. I'm like, why are we laughing? This is terrible. But that's sort of the reaction, isn't it? It's just like weird comedy, isn't it? It. It's hilarious. Um, just the whole, um, just who that character, the guy is, you know, like the, from the, the, you know, who he is in real life versus who he plays. And then, and then the, the character that you follow, who's trying to set up the hit, um, who is just remarkable, I think. Um, I know. Can't so. make that, you cannot make that shit up. No, no. And, and I'm like, is this another one where you kind of sat down with your editor and said, let's think of somebody fun to write about, maybe an undercover hitman with the ATF, or, or how did that come about? Yes, it came via um, – it, it came to me from the uh, – during a fact-checking experience with the ATF, and um, 
the woman who was helping me at the ATF started telling me about her guys. She was really proud of her agents who had done this undercover work and started. she just started unloading stories on me. And I was like, what the, what in the world are you talking about? Um, and then they allowed me to come and um, hang out with a couple of the, of the undercover guys doing hitman work. <laughs> that's it. I mean, that's all. It was just like, I just had to, I just had to see for myself. Yeah. It's a really funny story. And it, and I'll recommend that everybody read it. Uh, we've linked to, to that story on our website, uh, along with several other stories from Jean Marie Laskus. That's www.gangrythepodcast.com. Um, Jean Marie, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you, Matt. That was a talk I had with Jeannie Marie Laskus in November of 2013. At the time, Laskus had just profiled our new president, Joe Biden. As usual, I've linked to everything that we talked about on the website. You can find that at gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter. That's at gangrypodcast. Gangry is spelled G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. You can also like the podcast on Facebook. You can subscribe to Gangry the Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or any Google Play app. Just search Gangry. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y podcast. Gangry the Podcast is produced in Donnarumma Studios at Fairfield University. It's made possible by Fairfield University's digital journalism program and the College of Arts and Sciences. Our music comes from Audionautics. This episode was hosted and produced by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us. Mm-hmm.